Well, we, we think we're live, and we see the thumb of authority from the abyss. Uh, we have been watching the COVID-19. I went to the statistics today with regard to outcome-based fatality rates to see what's happening. And the United States has an outcome, not a confirmed case fatality rate, but an outcome fatality rate of almost 14%. Uh, there's about a, um, over well over a million, maybe a million and a half now of confirmed cases. And those cases, of course, have no outcome. So there's no way that they can be part of an outcome based fatality rate. We did the math last week. Hope you watched that. Probably you didn't. No one else did either. Don't feel bad. But uh, the point of all of that gave a point right off the bat. Oh, my gosh. I'm slipping. But uh, is that. It's very likely, Lori and I discussed it, that very likely because so much fatality is for the elderly, the compromised immune, people with uh, pre-existing conditions and uh, morbidities that in, uh, outside of just the COVID disease. And it may be that the fatalities are heavily weighted with that particular demographic. And as the rest begin to uh, get to recovery or to mortality, We'll see that number collapse, and hopefully that's true, in which case uh, uh, churches uh, like ours, our church is particularly, this, this digital world is not, but the, well, maybe as well, but for certain the analog group here is, is um, pretty well filled with uh, people with pre-existing conditions and morbidities that are particularly fragile to this strain of influenza. Me being first and foremost, so I want to be, I want to make sure that this church does no harm to that particular group. Um, uh, anyway, <coughs> excuse me. Here we go. Oh, I should say off the, off the bat here, my gosh, is, uh, are we seeing the country disintegrate? It is, it is accelerating. It is trying to do its best to destroy itself, in my view. You, you take civil society uh, and expose it to, uh, to uh, the degradation of law enforcement. And by degradation, there's a movement to defund all law enforcement. You do that, and society will, uh, will explode into... So, it, it, there, there, there will be a complete collapse... Uh, why that's being something that's entertained, uh, it's insanity, it's madness. But the Bible predicts that the world will go into madness. And we are seeing madness. Uh, not to the level that it will be, but my, my gosh, it's obvious that it is more than any time in my lifetime. I can see because I, of course, watch Gunsmoke and Bonanza. I know what the movies are today. I know what the popular culture is doing today. And the exponential increase in madness is all around us. So that's something to be comforted by, as you are aware. Christ said it's going to happen. Be prepared for it and be comforted by it, even though it's not so easy to be comforted. But recognize it as a sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles. Okay, enough of that uh, warm, fuzzy stuff. Contemporary, seeker-sensitive 
It is June the 7th, 2020, lecture discussion number 105 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. I hope it's 105. We get confused. It might be 106. We know it's not 104, but there might be two 104s. We're not really sure anymore because one of us is old that's running this operation. I received some feedback from last week's lecture discussion on angiotensin converting enzyme number two. Not to be confused with angiotensin enzyme converting number one. Uh, and unsurprisingly, everyone that, that heard that lecture universally raved about it, especially the part where we did limits of functions. Limit of one over x equals zero as x goes towards infinity. Everybody loved that. There's a appears that there's a large audience for microbiology and horizontal asymptotes. Asymptotes. Let me put that on the board. I always said it wrong. Asymptotes. Okay. Horizontal. Who knew? that everyone would like horizontal asymptotes. Uh, like I said, there's obviously a huge audience for it. I'm, I'm thinking about just dropping all my other stuff and going right to this for the rest of my so-called career. I should probably explain what a horizontal asymptote is. A horizontal asymptote, I have an X and I have a Y axis, right? Okay, a horizontal asymptote is a... Uh, horizontal line that uh, where mathematically nothing ever penetrates it. So in other words, I'll have, a, I'll have a graph like this where it will never quite hit that line. That's called a horizontal asymptote. So it's a line on a graph that's approached but not touched. In this case, uh, the line would be the limit of 1 over x equals 0 as x approaches infinity. Because as you know, all of you know, that, well, that's the zero line, right? This would be the zero line. All of you know that uh, uh, you, you cannot reach infinity. So if I am dividing by infinity, one divided by infinity, if you remember that from last week, uh, infinity can't be approached, therefore zero line cannot be approached. That means I have a horizontal asymptote. As you all know, you also all know that not one single person, not one, everything I said up to this point was hopefulness. And so far, not one person has raved about either angiotensin converting enzyme number two or horizontal asymptotes. No one, none, not one as of yet. Though I will concede that lecture number 104 might exactly be, might be a horizontal asymptote. In other words, it's a lecture that approaches zero people. No one liked it. It's a dead loser. But uh, uh, I, uh, I hope you can gather that metaphor. I'm holding out for that one person somewhere. I'm pretty much begging now. Somewhere in the world who clambers 
for undefined mathematical concepts, the indeterminate as opposed to determinism. As you know, I have done lots of indeterminism and determinism with respect to the, uh, uh, Einstein and Einstein, Polosky and Rosen and Bell, uh, Heisenberg. And I find it interesting because I know what it does theologically. I know it's a theological argument, not a mathematical ar uh, argument. Theoretical physics ends up in theology uh, consistently. And for that one possible person, there are, and of course there's no zero probability, so there is a possibility that there's one person out there, no matter how small. That also might be a horizontal uh, asymptote. If you understood that, I've, I've corrupted you now. Again, if you were to graph y equals 1 over x, Let me get a little bit more refined. If, you, if that's what you're trying to do, y equals 1 over x as x goes towards infinity, you could never reach zero. Infinity cannot be reached by x, and thus y will never reach zero, the zero line. And the zero line, again, is a horizontal asymptote. Hard to say because I have... P's and T's and M's in there, and my, my body doesn't like that. My point, yay, wow, a point again, is that infinity and nothing have this theological wondrous symmetry, the symbiosis, if you wish to think of it that way. And when you couple, uh, it's obvious that the mind, the mind that has conceived this zero and infinity when you couple it to the obviousness of that mathematics is a construction of a mind an intelligent consciousness and that mind the mind it would be more accurate is the source of all things space matter energy time life existence all consciousness when you recognize that I have a condition where something can be approached but not broken through then you begin to see the solution to free will and omniscience. And I realize it may appear, again, that I'm begging for approval for one person out there to understand what I just did. Because it encourages me. And I'll do it over and over and over again because I really do like it. I get in these discussions when people come to me and they say, well, omniscience makes free will impossible. And I say, well, what about y equals 1 over x as x goes towards infinity? What about horizontal asymptotes? And they look at me like I'm nuts. But uh, as I said, something that approaches but does not reach. And it's in, it's in mathematics. So I'm, I'm, I just need that one person somewhere uh, Apparently, Cliffside is, is huge in the Bahamas. Is that true, Dave? I think so. Dave is asleep already. But there he is. Yep, snapped him back. Uh, Cliffside's huge in the Bahamas, right? Yeah, we're, it's incredible. What was it? Almost 300 people in the Bahamas. Yeah, 265 or 270, something like that. Who would have thunk that we would be killing it in the Bahamas? Uh, but I'm hoping there's somebody there that goes, oh, that's a really good point. Horizontal asymptotes. 
The limit of 1 over x as x goes to infinity. y equals 1 over x. My goodness. So if you're out there, I need your help. Because you'll be the only one. And I have to have one to keep going. Anyway, I realize I did not explain how horizontal asymptotes solve free will and omniscience other than to repeat the omniscience of God. Knowing all things, knowing everything is not contradictory to free will. There is a clear uh, position that does not violate uh, that, that incredible truth because of existence, not just philosophically, but mathematically. That's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, microbiology, as with quantum physics, reveals the mathematics of living beings. That's what it does. And, and by that, I mean microbiology and quantum physics both testify of, of an intelligent mind. An infinite mind, an infinite consciousness, the infinite consciousness that spoke everything into existence from nothingness. Genesis 1-1 is infinity and zero. That's how the Bible starts out, infinity and zero. That's really cool. Christ, Jesus Christ, declares himself in Revelation 1, 5 through 20 to be that infinite consciousness of Genesis 1-1. Now, I recognize that's an Elohim, that's a triune Godhead there, but he is Elohim. The Father is Elohim. The Holy Spirit is Elohim. It is three that are one, distinct persons, but one. It is, again, Deuteronomy 6, 4. But he says that he is that infinite consciousness. He is the knower of all things. He's the one with the book of life. He is the author of the book of life, Revelation 3, 5 through 12. Put that on the board. That's what he says about himself. In order to be the one with the book of life, you have to be the one that created the life in the book of life, don't you? It's really not that difficult logically. He is the creator of life, John 8.12. I say John 8.12 all the time because John 8.12 is the same as Genesis 1.1. So when you put those together, or 1.3 as well, Genesis 1.3... When you put all of that together, you understand what he is actually saying. Also, uh, Genesis 2-7, where he is the breather of the breath of life. And 7-22, the breather of the breath of life uh, in all animals. That's also in Genesis 1 as well. Microbiology and quantum physics have begun to show that it is him that did it and how he did it. And the mathematical impossibility then of any other process. It has to be an infinite intelligent consciousness that has done this. And microbiology and and quantum physics both are looking at the microscopic world and and the scientific community is beginning to recognize, whoa. And all such explanations that are contrary to an infinite consciousness creating all matter, space, time, energy uh, are absurd. They're mathematically ridiculous. They're impossible mathematically. We've always known that in the mathematical realm. It was known from the very beginning that there is no mathematical calculation that can accomplish uh, a non-intelligent creation. Um, the, just the communicative interconnectivity 
of microbiology in a human being, much less uh, any living animal, is just astonishing. It's irreducible complexity. And the only thing that explains it, to repeat myself, is an infinite mind. Mathematics precludes any other possibility. That's why I love mathematics. And that is why we, by we I mean me, we have ventured into angiotensin converting enzyme number two. Receptors are what's really living cell replication, ultimately. Okay? So I really, I have such a, I have such a, how do I put it? The church needs to be doing it. And the fact that the church doesn't do it is disappointing to me. Because then you leave it to uh, the corruption of the academic sciences and the politics that has overwhelmed them. And uh, that makes it uh, no, no longer mathematics or science, but simply political agenda-based. Uh, and, and financially, I, don't, I understand what they're doing. They need the money. So they comply. We see a lot of people complying because they need the money nowadays. I find that interesting. Okay. I also received a letter from Jerry. I don't know where you live, Jerry. I just thought uh, he, he, he wanted me to address omniscience, uh, which, of course, is infinity. See, I'm still in the same topic. Thanks, Jerry, for that. Um, and, he, and he wanted it done at John 21, or John 20 and John 21, actually. But he has a concern for my position with respect. To, let me erase this. Hey. He wrote to me a very nice letter and uh, hardly uh, told me I was an idiot more than four or five times. But no, he didn't. It just That's just my way of being weird. But he's looking at John 21 now. And he wants to know why I don't have what I would consider, consider to be the... Uh, uh, the conventional position. I don't have very many conventional positions. Some might suggest that I am unconventional. I don't disagree with that. But I am somebody who approaches uh, these kinds of issues, um, I guess, with an odd approach, a perspective. Uh, so I thought, okay, this is, this is worth doing. And uh, again, I'm going to um, back up into John 20, 1 through 2. So I guess I should put all of these on the board so that those of you on the Internet and Jerry, if you're watching, I, you know, I'll try to make it as, as confusing as possible. That's not a joke. Yes, it is. That's a reality, says Terithathy from the background in a, a plaintive morning. Uh, oops, 18. Uh, So what we're going to go into today is this particular subject because I think that it has great value to the subject at hand. I hope you will see why. I also think it's something that I need to get done uh, uh, as I get to the stage of where we are, just in case. Uh, this, if you want to condense it, is Mary Magdalene. Mary Mag. Thomas and Simon Peter. So that's what that is about. 
and the and ultimately it's a, about the purpose of the gospel of John. John has a singular focus. It's all he all he wants to do. I think there's some elements of where he uh, tries uh, different uh, tracks, but most of that is in the first second or first John, second John, third John. But his singular focus in the gospel of John is uh, is really important to recognize. He ends pretty much with, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Uh, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And what he's, that is the anointed one, the Son of God, which is Proverbs 30, verse 4. He's trying to make you understand that when you see the Son of God in the Bible, you go to Proverbs 30, verse 4. And that believing you may have life in his name. His name, of course, is Revelation 3, 8. His name. That is very important that you keep the name of Christ and you understand what his name is. His name is uh, obviously his uh, salvation. And uh, let me put... uh, Oh, I've already got John up there. Sorry. I've already got John 20, 27 up there, so I don't have to repeat that. So, yes, I'm saying that Mary Magdalene at the tomb and Thomas inside the, the rooms with the shut doors and Peter, son of Jonah, Matthew 12, 39 through 40, sign of Jonah, three days, I'm saying... Peter denied Christ three times. Peter was asked by Christ the same question three times and was grieved. Uh, here I add Zechariah 12. Zech 12, 10 and 11. So I have this grieving of Peter, three questions, three denials. Sign of Jonah, three days, three nights. Thomas and Mary Magdalene. I'm saying those three are interlocked and that if you're trying to figure out what's going on with Peter you have to know what happened with Thomas and what happened with Mary Magdalene because they are in order and you have to rec- you don't have to I'm hoping you will you'll recognize what John is trying to do he's always trying to do the same thing in the gospel of John in my opinion I think the evidence is overwhelming that my opinion is right Duh. But those three have to be a unit. If you separate out Peter or Thomas or Mary Magdalene and isolate them, then you lose the purpose of the order that they're placed in. So anyway, Mary Magdalene, Thomas, John 20, connect and therefore explain John 21, which is Peter's three questions. Does that make any sense to anybody here at all? Pretend it does. Yeah, very good. No, yeah, yeah. Whatever that meant. But anyway, Jerry's question is excellent. It's an excellent question. It's one I've gotten often throughout my many years of doing this. I do not believe I've ever really fully explained it beyond the omniscience and the infinity aspect of it. And perhaps I've added in Matthew fourteen twenty-two. I don't remember if I have. Uh, Perhaps I've done that. If I haven't, I just did it now. Um, 
I'd go all the way, if I could, all the way to 33. And so, I, I tried to remember. Usually, I can tell by my notes if whether or not I've actually taught one particular thing or left it out. Because all my, my Bible, if you ever went through it, I have two of these, and they're all just completely filled with notes to myself to not be an idiot. Um, and so I look at those and I say, did I do Matthew 14, 22 through 33? And that, of course, is where, where what? That's where Peter is sinking beneath the waves, right? You remember that story. He decides he can walk on water because Christ tells him he can. He walks for a little while, then he gets a little bit afraid. And what does Christ do? He waits until Peter says something. What does Peter say? He says, Lord, save me. Cries out, Lord, save me. And as soon as Peter cries out, Lord, save me, Christ immediately, that's immediate. So, Lord, save me. So, Christ moved very quickly. He stretched out his hand. He saves Israel. Oh, sorry, Peter. Israel, Peter, Israel, Peter, 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 Israel, Israel. He saves them immediately as soon as they cry out to him. Zechariah 12, 10 through 11. So I gave away the whole lecture right there. Anywho, Jerry would like me to explain why I don't accept the agapus and the phileus position. The conventional position, agapus and phileus. I have a little bit of a different view on that. And I, ha I don't, the standard explanation is overwhelming out there. And, and, and what this is, is essentially a... a, a uh, a classical Greek interpretation as opposed to a biblical Greek interpretation. It's important to know about the Hellenistic influence into Jerusalem or into the Jewish culture at this particular time. And so we ended up with a biblical Greek, biblical Greek and classical Greek. Uh, the, the Bible was written in what is obviously called biblical Greek as opposed to classical Greek. I am. Um, I'll explain that more next week. I didn't have time to get it all done today. Let me see how I'm doing right now. Oh, wow. I am screaming along. I've only got 34, 5, maybe 50 pages to go to fix this particular thing. I prefer to focus on what the Apostle John focused on. Again, that's the absolute infinite Godhood of Christ. That's what I, 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 I can see the arguments with the classical and the, and the biblical Greek. I understand all of the... I know the th seminaries make a fortune teaching people this stuff, and so I don't want to interfere with their financial uh, viability. Uh, but I also say that the context, uh, what the Apostle John is trying to accomplish, becomes very important here. He is trying to present the absolute infinite Godhood of Christ. The us of Genesis 1.26. I can't put the us on there enough. The us, the Elohim. Genesis 1 1, Genesis 1 26, uh, Genesis 3 22. That is what John is doing. And I see the triune nature again of God, Deuteronomy 6 4, as the intent of Christ. And the classical Greek language position is therefore unconvincing to me. Um, the classical Greek is what I'll, I'll do them both here in a minute. But the classical Greek position is what is the most popular today, and overwhelmingly so. And this is a, uh, uh, I should say, this is an old contest. 
and theological circles. Uh, circles. I've witnessed it uh, make the rounds in the church uh, for years and years and years as I am very old now. It likely arose uh, from those, I was talking to Dave about it earlier, if Dave exists, still up in the air. We still don't know. We have no, no conclusive evidence either way. Uh, every evidence that we have, again, can be refuted pretty easily. So we don't know for sure. Uh, but Dave and I, if Dave is there, I was talking to him about it. This likely arose because one of Dave's particular interests is uh, the old King James. Um, and this uh, position that I'll discuss here in a, in a minute was, uh, w- was very likely something that was brought forward in order to diminish the King James, the old King James translation. At least that's a facet of it to when I was young, because I ran into it all the time. The old King James fell from favor when I was in my teens, um, shortly after Lincoln was assassinated in, in the Civil War. Uh, actually, uh, really the 1960s and the 1970s is when I began to hear this particular explanation of John 21. And basically, there are two contentious positions of John 21, 15 through 17. Okay, I've, I've extended it all the way through, but it's really 21, 15 through 17 is what we'll argue out mostly. Um, the oldest view, which is the biblical Greek view, is that there are no consistent distinctions uh, in the Greek um, with respect to the word love, the verb love. And again, that's the bi- biblical Greek side of the issue. The opposing position is that agapus is significantly superior to phileus. So this is like uh, number one. and This would be number 12. Okay, not two. It would be way down. So agapis is, is primary and incredible, and phileus is okay, barely. Um, that's the classical view, the classical Greek view. So again, the opposing position is that agapis is significantly superior to phileus. Agapis being elevated by the translators to indicate divine love, the purest of the loves, while the then phileus. You'll recognize Philadelphia, right? Phileus is relegated to envy or inferiority. It's a lower form of love. Its friendship is what's usually uh, portrayed or described. Human love, if you will. So divine love and human love. Agapis divine, Phileus human. And the point, again, yay, wow, so many points. What do we do with all the points? We're just pointing everywhere. It's raining points. This should be, we should do a song. Never mind. Anyway, the, the central meaning then is that of Christ's three questions is to raise, to bring Peter to the agapis uh, level or platform. I, of course, say I, I don't think that's there. I submit otherwise. The purpose of Christ is not to bring Peter to an agapis platform because there isn't an agapis platform. And that's a construction of people uh, who want it to be there. But it's, as I said, I'm unconvinced. Uh, the purpose of Christ is to bring, raise Peter to the Thomas platform. Uh, notice I didn't say the Mary Magdalene platform. I said to bring Peter to the Thomas platform. 
which is John 20, 28. Do I have that on there? Yes, 20, 28. Thomas makes a proclamation. What does he say there? You all know. He says the incredible thing. One of the greatest things ever said in Scripture. He says, my Lord and my God. And Peter does that at verse 17 of 21. John 21, he says, you, Lord, you know all things. Those are synonymous. Those are uh, the same thing. Thomas, my Lord and my God, the first one to put Lord and God together. He knew that Christ, once he saw him, he knew that Christ was God. He knew, he knew this is Genesis 1-1. This is Genesis 1-3. This is Genesis 1-26. This is Genesis 2-7. He knew that. This is Genesis 7:22. My Lord and my God. And Peter goes, Lord, you know all things. Bang. Peter and Thomas agree. And that's what I believe Christ was trying to do. Now, if he tells me otherwise, obviously I'll concede. But if I'm right again, oh my gosh, am I going to be impossible to live with in the eternal state? I'll have no friends. I'm kidding. Kind of. You know all things. That's omniscience. That's infinity. That's absolute Godhood. And to give Jerry, hi Jerry, to give Jerry uh, credit, he, he understood that. And he just asked me why I didn't like the typical Agapus Phileas position. So Jerry is right, uh, but uh, he wants to know why I have discounted this. And, uh, so I haven't finished with that. So... Uh, Is there a difference in force between those two words? That seems to be something we need to resolve. Is there a difference in level between agapis and phileus? Um, and these are two verbs. Uh, if not, then the three questions have a different meaning uh, that is unrelated to the conclusions offered by the classical uh, Greek uh, Bible scholars. Uh, oh, and, and I should say this really fast. Biblical Greek is not the same as classical Greek. And so you see this debate in the seminaries where should I study biblical Greek or should I study classical Greek? And, of course, all the seminaries want you to study which one. That's right, classical Greek. Why do they want you to study classical Greek if the Bible is not written in classical Greek? Well, we can speculate. And the classical Greek guys are... They all have long noses and they go like this and they stand on platforms and they look down upon the biblical Greek people. They say, you should learn classical Greek. Um, and I think it's wonderful. I also think you should learn Hebrew. Hebrew is wonderful. Um, and so, oh no, I have to bend down. Watch this. Watch this. Is that amazing? I should do that for the camera because it's so incredible. Yeah, I know. I can't put it on the bottle. <coughs> Even though it landed the top side down. So I, I will put it on the bottle when you're not looking. How's that? Okay. Because that's the same as not putting it on the Bible because I've removed your observation. Oh, the observation effect. Ah, is there a difference in force, in level of these two verbs? And if not, then the three questions don't have the meaning of the classical Greek scholars. 
And even among those who ascribe to the view that agapis is a higher form, or they say agapis is a higher form than phileus, there's argument here as to the level and to the preference. In other words, they see divine love as a detached love. So they have the, they have a, the opinion that, that there's a difference between the words, but they actually think phileus is better. So there's an argument over which one is better. They say they're different. One of them is higher than the other, but they can't agree which one's the highest. That makes me a little bit concerned about the argument. They see human love as emotional, as a softer, as a softer love, a simpler, more affectionate love. So Peter is wishing to be affectionate in a human way towards Christ. So that's a good thing. They see what Peter is doing is good. Where the other people say, no, Christ is trying to make agapis. He's trying to bring him up to a better love. They see his phileus is bad. Huh? I think they're all, every one of them are wrong. The only one that's right in this is, of course, me. Probably not. That's a joke, though lots of people will say, they say to me all the time, you are incredibly arrogant. No, not incredibly. (laughs) Anyway. Needless to say, there's no consensus here, and though you will find otherwise, the classical Greek scholars are numerous and insistent. They prevail mostly, and so you find their view that Agapus is divine love and Phileus is human love, and human is inferior. And that's always the case. Human is inferior to divine. But probably uh, we should read the passage now. I did all of that just to warm you up. So here we go. We're going to read 21:15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. Ooh, three days, three nights, sign of Jonah, Matthew 12. Do you love me more than these? And he says, Agapus, there. He said to him, Peter says to him, yes, Lord. You know. Oh, who's these? Who's the these? He had choices. Is it the other disciples? Could be. Could be the fish. Which one? You pick a fit of his position. Fish or the other disciples? Uh, I can argue either one. So bring a lunch. Do you love me, Agapus, more than these? And, and he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Phileas. He said to him again, Christ says to him again, A second time, Simon, son of Jonah. Do you love me, Agapus? And Peter said to Christ, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Phileas. He said to him, Tend my sheep. I forgot feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. I'm just skipping some of it because of this particular issue. He said to him a third time, three times. How many times is Peter going to be assigned this number? Pay attention. Again, rooster, sign of Jonas, three questions. Denials, if you prefer, over rooster. I just shorten it to rooster. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And that is Phileas. So Christ changes. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me, Phileas? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you, Phileas. So, so Peter is grieved. Did I spell grieved right? Is it E before I? I should look. I got it right. Yay me. He's grieved. It is a mournfulness. 
Okay, there's a lot to work through. Uh, there's a lot here. I probably need, i got to erase it all now. I'll leave Mary, Peter, and Thomas there. Not in that order, obviously. Mary, Thomas, and Peter. I'll get rid of grieved. I'll get rid of fish, our disciples, which I didn't put on. I'll get rid of all of this. Hopefully, you've now got the issue. Those of you who are watching, and if you need to write it all down, uh, then you could back up. We can agree. I hope that the one who confounded, confused the language at Genesis 11.1, 11.6, and 11.7, that is the Tower of Babel. The whole earth was one uh, of one language and of one speech. It says there, behold, the people are one and they have all have one language. Let us go down the Elohim. Let us go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. We can agree that Christ is the one who did that because he is in the Deuteronomy 6.4. He is in the Elohim. They're all the same. Again, he is infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God of creation. So we can say that the one who confounded the language of Genesis 11:1, 11:6 and 11:7, that's Christ. Christ is the second person of the triune, us, the Elohim. Language is a function of a mind. It is a function of of a consciousness. The old thing, think before you speak, well you always think before you speak. You can't speak without thinking. It is a consciousness that is giving you the language. All language must trace back, therefore, to a single consciousness. That's the law of causality. The, the event cannot be greater than the cause. We covered that last week. So all of that to just ask this question. Did Christ speak biblical Greek, classical Greek, Galilean Hebrew dialect? Uh, or did he go to biblical Hebrew? Did he go to Semitic Aramaic? Or did he use Old King James English? There are a lot of people in this world that believe he speak, spoke Old King James English. I hope you realize that he didn't. Obviously, that, that question I just asked is intentionally poorly worded, right? That's an intentionally poorly worded question. More obviously than that is Christ being God, whatever he spoke... It didn't matter what he speak, spoke. I hope you recognize that. It didn't matter. Whoever he spoke to heard him in the language of themselves. And other, let me say that again. Acts 1, 6, 1, 8. He, whatever he spoke would have been heard in the language of those who heard him. That is Acts 1, 6. That is the miracle of, the, of tongues, isn't it? It isn't that I need a translator. I don't need a translator. He speaks a dialect or a language and I hear it in my language. That's the miracle of Acts. And again, to repeat, Hellenistic culture had overtaken Jewish culture at this time. And, and so there's many, many Greek-speaking Jews here. But there was also, at 1.6 and 1.8, that was a pilgrimage festival, so there was many other Jews that did not speak uh, Hellenistic Greek or Biblical Greek. As you know, therefore, Acts 1.6 and 1.8 where I have the Shavuot, I have uh, the feast day of Shavuot, refers back to Genesis 11, 1, 11, 6, 11, 7, to the Tower of Babel, because the Tower of Babel was demonstrated 
the person who did it demonstrated that he did it and that he can change it when he wills. Uh, also, Exodus 19:16 and Exodus 20:18. That's the thunderings of, this, of Mount Sinai. The thunderings of Mount Sinai. I had a huge people, group of people. Not all of them were Jews. Most of them, or a lot of them, were Egyptian. They didn't speak Hebrew. And the thunderings are languages. There, it says there was thunderings. Uh, it's not our thundering. It's, it is His voice, God's voice, and they all heard what He said at Mount Sinai in their own language. Same thing again in Acts one six one eight. Adam spoke Hebrew. That'll make people mad. That's how I know right there. You can look that up on your phones in your spare time. I have to hurry. I don't want to digress. Uh, yes, I do. Now, I proposed a few pages back that Mary Magdalene, Thomas, and Peter are the solution. Thomas and Peter, Mary Magdalene, three pieces of a whole. And this, uh, this controversy is solved by them. In other words, when the translation is unresolvable and English is not the original language of the New Testament, duh, uh, we are left with the context to determine the meanings. And I'm saying the context is Mary Magdalene, Thomas, and Peter. In addition to that, I want to know what Peter knows when he's talking to Christ in these three questions. Does Peter know what Jesus is doing with the three questions? I say, yep. Peter does know. That's why he's grieved. He knows what Christ is doing with these three questions. Did Peter connect them to the sign of Jonah? I say he did. Did Peter connect them to Peter's three denials? Oh, absolutely he did. But also the sign of Jonah. Do not assume that Peter is an idiot. He's not. You can read what he says. Now you can say, oh, well, that was after the Holy Spirit. No, he spent three years with Christ. How smart are these guys? They're ridiculous. Quote my granddaughter. She sits in front of me and we do this little game where she tries to get me to clap my hands. And I'm never able to do it. And it is hilarious. She grabs my hands and she tries everything she can to make me do it. And I never accomplish it. Finally, she gives up and she says, Grandpa, you are ridiculous. And she's right about that. Did Peter connect the three questions to Matthew 14, 22 through 33? Yes, he did. That again is when he sank beneath the waves and Christ immediately reached him. How far away was Christ? Was he a hundred yards away, a half a mile away? How far away was he when he grabbed Peter? Do you assume that he was right next to him? I don't think you can assume that. It's not so apparent when you you look at John 21.7 and Matthew 14.30. You don't see that connection, but I hope that you do. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And he is sinking immediately. Christ stretches out, grabs him. Caught him. And those who saw this, what did they do? Matthew 14.33. What did they do? Well, what they did is they knew something as soon as they saw it. Truly, you are the Son of God, Proverbs 30, verse 4. They went right to Proverbs 30, verse 4. Exactly what John wants you to do all the time. He says, Son of God. Those who saw Christ catch Peter said, Oh my gosh, this is God. 
truly you are the Son of God. Let's go about establishing the appearance of Christ to Mary Magdalene, because he appears to Mary Magdalene. And then he appears to Thomas. Then he asks Peter three questions. Um, so the obvious question is, his first resurrection appearance, post-resurrection appearance, is to Mary Magdalene. Why? Why did he pick her? Is it just proximity? She's hanging around. So, okay, I'll appear to here. He could appear to anybody, but he doesn't. He appears to her. Why? It's a woman named Mary. Why does he do that? His second is to the disciples inside the shut room. They're shut inside. Thomas is absent. And seven days later, he appears to Thomas. And then he appears to the seven disciples in the boat. He's on the, he's on the seashore, right? And John pro- proclaims immediately, that's God. And Peter is in the water again, fully clothed. He puts his clothes on, doesn't he, John 21, 7, and jumps into the water. What's he thinking? Matthew 14, 33. I guarantee you he's thinking Matthew 14, 33. In my opinion, Peter had remembered Matthew 14, 30. So how much had Peter figured out by the time of the three questions? How smart is Peter? If you think he's dumb, I think you're making a terrible error. What caused Peter to be grieved? Was it one question? Or was it all three questions? Again, Zechariah 12, I took it off the board, 10 through 11. Were all of Israel grieves and mourns for their rejected Matthew 12? They rejected Christ, Matthew 12, Matthew 12, 31. And that, of course, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is a, it is a nation that rejects Christ as Messiah, as God, on the basis that he's actually Satan. And he's physically in front of them. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the definition of it. It's a national sin of rejecting God himself in the flesh on the basis that he is under the control of Satan. It's Matthew 12, 24. Is Peter grieving over nuanced distinctions in two verbs? That's ultimately where we end up. Did Peter mourn because the questions were slightly different? Got to look here. Okay, I'm running into trouble. I should insert here. Or did he grieve because, mourn because the three questions were exactly the same? I should insert here that the Greek Septuagint, Agapus and Phileus are used interchangeably. Rut row. John does it, in fact, in John 3.35. Does it in 5.20. John does it. What makes you think he's not doing it here in John 21, 15 through 17? In John 3.35, it says the Father loves the Son, Agapus. In John 5.20, the Father loves the Son, Phileas. Absolutely interchangeable. Divine love is both Agapus and Phileas. Again, John 3.35, John 5.20. And they are substituted, interchanged, substituted as equals. There are other examples in the, in the Septuagint of this fungibility. Genesis 37.3, 37.4, Israel, uh, 
Israel loves Joseph. Loved Joseph. Agapus, more than all his children. But when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph, loved him more, loved Joseph more, loved Phileas than all his brothers. The level of love, therefore, is identical. But the words are not identical. Yet I'm positing that they are identical. If there is no distinction, we are left with with what should always then prevail. In this case, it's the cumulative information provided of Mary Magdalene and Thomas and Peter. I have a list. List makers are going to list. There's my list. That's Mary Magdalene. Okay. I don't have time. How much time do I have, uh, Terithavi? I have zero time? Okay. I'll run through the list. I knew I wasn't going to make it. I even told Jerry that I don't think I can do it in one lecture at all, and I'm not. Mary Magdalene, let me just give it to you very fast. Jesus' first appearance post-resurrection is to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene had seven, probably a coincidence, demon, never a coincidence, cast out of her. Uh, by Christ, Luke 8, 12, or 8, 2. Um, that, of course, those casting out of those demons is going to take you to Matthew 12, 43 through 42, which is the aftermath, if you will, of the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ on the basis that he is Satan. And also Matthew 12, 28. Mary stays at the tomb weeping, John 20, 11, after the disciples had left. Why does she do that? Uh, she sees two angels in white. White is critical information. That's Daniel 7, 9. That's Matthew 17, 2. Matthew 28, 3. Mark 16, 5. Luke 9, 29. Revelation 1, 14. Daniel 10, 4. And Daniel 12, 5, which we currently are investigating. So see how I got it all back together. Jesus says to her, why are you weeping? Woman, why are you weeping? Well, who does that remind you of, John 11? 33. Why are you weeping, woman? And of course, she's groaning, right? She is grieving, John 20, 15. Whom are you seeking? He asked her. And she did not know who he was. She did not know him. Let me repeat that. Mary Magdalene, the first one in line here that ties us to Peter, did not know who Christ was when he's talking to her. Did not know him. Thought it was the gardener. Adam, Genesis 2.8. It's the second Adam, not the first Adam. But she thought it's a gardener. She it's even says so. He says finally her name, Mary. And she says back to him, what should she have said there? What would you expect her to say? She says, teacher. What is not teacher? God is not teacher. Matthew 28.2-7. See that verse. See what he looked like in Matthew 28, 2 through 7. She looks at him and she goes, teacher. Look at Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Revelation 1, 16 through 20. Look at what he looked like. Look at him on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. She, she, she looks at this person and says, teacher. 
And he says back to her, do not touch me, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended. I am ascending. I'm in the process of ascending. And again, he has to go to the real altar, the real temple, holy of holies, the one in heaven. The book of Hebrews will explain that to you. I am ascending, John 3, 13. Proverbs 30, verse 4 again. Here we are. Numbers 21, 9. Genesis 28, 12. That's why we did the ladder a few weeks ago. He is in the process of ascending. He is the ladder. And we have at the end of this, I'll just stop Mary right now, right here. This is a recognition. She recognizes who he is. She knows it's Jesus, but she doesn't know who Jesus is. Does that make sense? I hope it does. But it's a recognition. It's a revealing. It's almost identical. It's one of the great recognitions, if you want to think of it that way. What's the one in the Old Testament? The Old Testament compliment. That's right. It's Joseph, Genesis 45, 1 through 3, where he reveals and they recognize him, right? Okay. And that's the Mary Magdalene list and not even half of it. It's resolved. Once you've got it resolved, not an easy task, but it's necessary establishing the symbol that is Mary Magdalene. Who is she Really? Well, she's Mary Magdalene. She's, she, she's an actual literal woman who said and did everything that's recorded in Scripture. She really did do that. But she fits somewhere. She obviously, in my view, fits in this group. Who is that group? But she's revealing truth. And the Apostle John, again, whose singular purpose is to give extraordinary evidence as to the deity of Christ, the absolute infinity of Christ. In his gospel and in his book of Revelation especially, but see 1 John 5, 6 through 8, it's amazing. He wants you to know about the triunity of Christ. John knows the importance of Mary Magdalene. That's why, and he also knows why Christ chose her. And that's why he put it in his gospel, because he's trying to make us understand who Christ truly is. Okay? So we sh- we're going to skip the part of the shut doors and where Christ breathes on the disciples. That's Genesis 2-7, isn't it? God in the flesh breathing on the disciples. Genesis 2-7. Now it's really fast, the Thomas list. I'll cut it way short, too. Thomas says this, I will not believe unless I see. Who says that today? What group? A woman is always either an ecclesiastical entity or it is a nation. I'm asking if Thomas is also an ecclesiastical entity or a nation. Seven days later, from when Thomas says that, Christ speaks to Thomas and says, touch me. Now, Mary can't touch him. Thomas can. So something happened in the interim. We've talked to that about but a lot more than I've ever said. He says, look at my hands, reach your hand, put it into my side. That is, we, that is Genesis 2.21. God reaches into the cella, not the rib. He pulls out, out of the side of Adam and builds Eve, who is, of course, the, in the Hebrew. Oh, there's her name. Uh, she is the church. That's what we see at the crucifixion with the spear. And out comes the living blood and the living water. Christ says, put your hand into my side, Genesis 2.21. The same process, except Thomas is in a different position, isn't he? 
Christ is still in the second Adam position. And he says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas responds again, my Lord and my God. Note the contrast to Mary Magdalene, who said, my teacher and my gardener, or my gardener and my teacher. And Peter is really extensive. I have to leave some of him out today. Just know that Josiah fits in with Peter. Peter cuts the ear off of Malchus. He's sinking into the waves. It's the Lord save me. It's the first time he's in the water. The second time he puts his coat on and jumps into the water. You figure out how he is he swimming. You have to decide. Did he swim with a coat on, all his clothes in the Galilean Sea? The Tiberias Sea, Galilee Sea, Sea of Galilee and Tiberias Sea. Peter has three denials. Uh, he rushes to the tomb. And, and, of course, John beats him there. But Peter is the first to enter the tomb. But, he, but Peter doesn't know the meaning of the face cloth, the folded face cloth, or the grave clothes. John figured it out. John saw the grave clothes and knew that Christ had resurrected himself. John 2.19, Christ resurrected himself. The triune God, all of them are participating in the resurrection of the infinite God. They have to. That's the definition of infinity. Peter is in the seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, Galilee. Peter is the one that says, I'm going fishing. And they see this figure who calls out to them, children, have you any food? And they answer what? No, because they have no idea who this is. And it even says so. They didn't know it was Christ. John, again, is the first one to know it's Christ. He says so. It's God. It's the Lord. There's 153 fish, and Peter is in the water. That's the second time. Of the second time, and then we have these three questions, uh, and he eventually does the same thing as he said that Thomas did. You are omniscient God, he says. He absolutely nails it. Him and Thomas, Mary Magdalene, gardener, teacher. So put together all of that, because I don't have time to put it together. Actually, I handed it to you on a silver platter. I really did, didn't I? Yes, I did. I'll get another letter from Sherry, uh, Savage Tinker Toy, she calls herself. She complains when I make it easy. Quit it, she tells me. It's hilarious. I have funny letters from her that are just brilliantly written, and I just haven't done it because I don't want to read them without uh, a greater audience here, but they are so good. All of that to say, John has a plan. And I think I submitted his plan. They are in the persons of Mary Magdalene, Thomas, and Peter. And if you leave anything out, you don't get any of it in my view. Oh, you might get some of it, but you won't get enough. You won't get what I think is obviously there. Be grateful. How did you dodge microbiology today? You did. And you're happy, every one of you. Everybody's happy. No microbiology. So... Next week, we're going to ask this. Are viruses living? Do they live? Are they alive? We need to know that. Okay. That was fun as I define fun.